0: we are going through romans chapter 6 through 8 and the sermon series called new you and uh, this morning i'm going to ask you to be courageous and to be honest because it's going to be a very difficult uncomfortable sermon okay and if you're sitting there going isn't it every sunday well today particularly okay can i just share something this is me i this Thursday, I'm dropping my daughter off at school, right? And I go on Western Avenue, south on Western Avenue, and there's a log jam. And I'm one of those really impatient people that can't stand traffic. So I'm just "Ah, ah," with my daughter in the back the whole time. And I get up there, and, and I see a truck, a pickup truck, and a dude is pouring gas into the pickup truck. Stopping traffic. And I just thought, what an idiot. Who does that? You know who does that? I do. I've done it twice. (laughs) Twice. One time when I was dating my wife, we ran out of gas. I did it twice. I've done it twice. And at the moment, like, what an idiot. Who does that? I do. Does anybody else do that? You look at other people and go, what an idiot. And very rarely you go, do I do that? Yeah, Uh, we do that all the time. (laughs) Yes! That's what I'm talking about, Wendy. That's right. Dan. Has anybody ever run out of gas while they're driving? So I don't feel like really stupid. Okay, all right, three, four people. Okay, okay. (laughs) We are in the minority. We are in the minority. (laughs) When I was a sophomore in college, I saw a 9.30 showing. This is like late 80s of a movie that had just, that had just come out. Uh, the movie was called Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> that, like other movies, it just stopped at the original, right? They shouldn't have gone and made the, made the other parts. But here's the scene in the movie. Here's a dialogue between Officer Sterling, played by Jodie Foster, and Hannibal. Officer Sterling says... They're talking in the jail. So she says, what happened to you to make you such a twisted person? He says, why, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. Why, you've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me. Officer Starling, can you stand to say that I am evil? Now, in case it just went over your head, here's what's going on between the two of them. Anthony Hopkins' character is nailing Jodie Foster's character, Officer Starling, because she looks at Anthony Hopkins and says, you can't just be you. Something must have happened to you. What happened to you to make you the way you are? She's doing typical Jerry Springer talk show cycle babble, right? Get somebody who's really messed up and going, what influences must have happened to you to make you such way? And Anthony Hopkins is relenting and he looks at her and says, nothing happened to me. This is who I am. And the reason why that's so hard for Jodie Foster's character, Officer Starling to understand is because if Anthony Hopkins is evil at his core and nothing happened to him, Jodie Foster has to what? Look at herself and go, am I like you? We live in a culture that says that people are born inherently good. Or a blank moral state, a slate. Anybody heard of Pelagius? Pelagius was a monk who said that there's no such thing as original sin. People are born just inherently good. He was a monk. He had no children. Okay? Yeah. Parents? <laughs> Parents? Do we believe in original sin? Yeah. Answer is yes! People are, by the way, people go, people are born inherently good. Then here's what I say. If you think people are born inherently good, then be consistently good. People are born inherently good. I have this huge anger issue. Okay, well, then be good. Just stop it. Well, I have struggled with porn addiction. I struggle with these other addictions. Okay, well, inherently good, be good. Let's do away with counseling altogether. You come into my office, you're inherently good. My advice, stop it, be good. Why doesn't that work? Because what? We are not inherently. Good. So here's the question we're facing this morning. Do you realize that you and I minimize the capacity for sin and capacity for wickedness that lies within us? Do you realize that? Our capacity for sin and wickedness and evil, our capacity for doing things that we would look at and go, I cannot believe I did that. That would shock us. That would traumatize us. Our capacity for it is very small. That's why, frankly, for some of us, we're sitting here this morning after having been away from church for a long time. Because we thought we were a goody-two-shoe Christian, and then we did something, and we're like, ah! And you were incapable of handling seeing yourself in a mirror, and you said, I'm gone. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Every single one of us, this is not me, the Bible says, has an enormous capacity for evil, for sin, far worse than we've ever imagined. And for many people, us, we're good people. So it's hidden, it's latent, and it takes certain circumstances for it to trigger it, like stress, like temptation, like suffering, like marriage to a very difficult person. And then it's like that thing in us is sort of unleashed. And we're like, oh, that's why here married couples talk to me. And they go, I never knew that about them. Really? I never knew that about her. I didn't know. What the heck was that? All of us, it's latent. They married you, by the way. That's what happened. It lies latent. And then it takes somebody or something or some event, and it's triggered. And boom. Now this, by the way, for you, if you've been coming to our sermon series, and right now you're having this like, whoa, moment, because here's what we've been saying. New you. The Bible says that when you become a Christian, there's a new you that's created. I, th- if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. The Bible says that there is a new you that's created. And the message of Christianity, listen, is not become a better you. That's garbage. The message of Christianity is in Christ. You are a new creation. So grow into your identity. Grow into your identity. Grow up into your identity as the new you. Romans 6. We are so identified with Christ that in baptism, we're so identified with Christ that what happened to Christ happens to us. And that means that we die to the rule and reign and the realm of sin. Sin is dead. The power of sin is dead in us. Do you know that? What are we just saying? My chains are gone. I've been set free. That's not just a wish. It's true. It really happened. We are dead to the rule and reign of sin. Now, sometimes, just out of pure habit, we go back to doing what we always used to do. We do. But the Bible is absolutely relentless. saying You are dead to the rule and reign of sin. Dead things don't have power. You are dead to rule and reign of sin. But, check this out. Here's where we're going today. The old man, or the old you, is not willing to go easily. That old you, the old self, the old nature, the old man, literally, the Bible says in Greek, is in us. And guess what happens when you become a Christian? That's why life doesn't become easier when you become a Christian. It becomes harder. Why? When you become a Christian and a new you is created in you, the old you says, I ain't going down without a fight. And it is aggravated and stirred inside of you. And that's why some of you are like, stuff that I didn't even know I struggled with, I'm struggling with now. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Things that I thought I was done with before. What is this? Why? The old Jew says, I'm not going down without a fight. And it will stir and aggravate your So this constant battle of the new me and living in reality to that. But the old me and the old nature that's dead, that's a husk, it hasn't got a heart left. It's mortally wounded. by the way. Because it's mortally wounded, it's more dangerous. Because it's wounded, it's lashing. Look, if you're not not experiencing this inner battle, I don't know if you're a Christian. Because the Bible says if you're a Christian, and I'm not saying we're better than you. If you're a Christian, there is an enormous internal battle in you between the old age and the new. If your life is one of ah, boredom, stagnation, indifference, I don't care. Nothing is happening. And everything is just calm. The Bible says authentic Christianity has as much inward battle as inward peace. Is this happening in you? Yes? It's a good sign. And we're gonna go. It's see. It's a good sign that internal battle in you. It's a good sign. That means that your old nature, as it is dying, and the new nature and living in realities of that. That enormous battle. Now, here's the thing. Paul says. Here's where we go totally wrong. Because how do we go about dying to the old self? How do we do it? We do what? Come on. We do what? Try harder. Obey the rules. Pull myself up by the bootstraps. The disciplines of the spiritual life, which are not, none of them are bad. All of those things. And Paul says, you do that, you're a goner. Game over. Because it's not going to work. And that's why some of us are sitting here going, I'm like this close to just checking out of the Christian life, Peter, because this battle in me is so fierce and intense. And I feel like a failure. I have good news for you. Because the Bible says, not only can you overcome it, but this is amazing. God has given you everything you need to overcome it. Romans chapter 7, let's go. Jumping right in. Verse 15. Even if you're not a Christian, by the way, and you're here today, you could totally relate to what Paul says here. I don't understand what I do. Can anybody say amen? (laughs) For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Can anybody agree? Okay, all right, all right. (laughs) And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Verse 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself would do it, but it is sin living in me. Verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do This I keep on doing now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Now, there's some people who've said, is this Paul before a Christian or after a Christian? And the reason why I'll get to that is because they can't imagine a good Christian saying this. And that, to me, is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. But let's do a little exegetical Bible study, shall we? Give me like two minutes. Let me show you why this is Paul as a Christian and not a non-Christian. Four things. Number one, real quick. There's a change in verb tenses. Verses 7 to 13 are in the past tense. Paul's talking about his past, his former life. But from 14 on, everything he talks about, all the verses, are in the present tense. Secondly, there's a change in situation. What do I mean? Verses 7 to 13, he says, sin is killing me. I am dead. Verses 14 and on, he talks about this intense, ongoing struggle with sin. Third, Paul says in verse 22, I delight in God's law. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. Romans 8, 7, Paul categorically says a non-Christian cannot in his heart of hearts delight in God's law. And fourth reason, Paul admits that he's a lost sinner. Can I ask you a question? When's the last time one of your non-Christians came to you and said, you know, I realize I am morally lost and I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. It doesn't happen, does it? The Bible says that those of us apart from Christ cannot even conjure up the need and desire to say, I'm lost and I need him apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, as a Christian, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry out. I know in my heart of hearts what the right thing is, but I just can't do it. Can anybody relate to Paul's struggle? Okay. Here's where we're going this morning. See, some of us grew up in environments where we were told that if we really love Jesus and we're mature the faith, we didn't struggle with sin. And if you struggle with sin, you were either not a Christian or not mature. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. I grew up in that environment. I grew up in that environment. So here's what happened. I became a Christian. And the environment that I grew up in, by the way, wasn't even safe to talk about my struggles. Because everybody walked around pretending that they didn't struggle with it. Can anybody know what I'm talking about? that's the church environment i grew up and it's like you got saved and everybody started walking on water and i got saved and i'm still struggling in the mud so i looked around honestly i looked around and i said maybe jesus doesn't work for me because if you're a christian the whole premise and framework of the gospel that i grew up in was this if you're a christian get saved then you won't struggle well i got saved and i struggled so then where do i go praise god for the gospel of jesus christ Because the gospel of Jesus Christ that I finally came around to like 10 years ago, which is the reason why I preach the way I do, says this. Although we are more wicked and sinful than we dare believe in Christ, we are more accepted and more loved than we dared hope at the same time. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not saved because we're good. We are not saved because we obey the rules. We're not saved because we do better. We are saved because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that says now you are justified, blameless, pure, holy, and righteous in the sight of God. That, my friends, is the gospel and good news. Amen? That is the gospel. Not, get saved, then you won't. Well, what if I still do? Well, I don't know if you're saved. That's heresy. Gospel says, although I am more wicked and sinful, in Christ I am. And you know what the amazing thing is? Jesus doesn't stop there. That's amazing. He says, I am the author and perfecter of this faith. That means he says, I don't just begin this thing. He says what? I finish it. I perfect it. He looks at you and me and he says, I'm not done with you yet. I know what you're struggling with. I see you in the mud. I see you struggling with that sinfulness. And I'm at work in you. I'm going to finish this work in you. I'm not going to leave you to be. the God." Legalism says God will love you if you obey. The gospel of Jesus Christ says God will make us good because he loves us unconditionally. God will make a, he says, I'm not leaving you alone in the interim. I'm not going anywhere. I'm gonna finish this work. I began it, I'm gonna finish this work, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish it. I'm I started this work, I'm gonna finish it. I'm the author and perfecter, and I am going to make sure that you become just like me someday. And I'm not letting you go. That's why Jesus comes along and says, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, there's now no condemnation. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about those little voices inside your head and my head. That says things like, you can't love Jesus. You can't possibly love Jesus. And God loves, look at you. Look at what you do. How can you possibly say that God loves you? And do you know what Jesus says? He says, you're going to listen to that voice. You know what Jesus says? He says, that's Satan. Do you know what I'm going to do to him? I'm going to torment him forever. And he's going to be cast away in all of eternity. That's what I'm going to do to him. I wouldn't listen to that voice if I were you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why do I talk about this all the time? Because here's the basic framework of the Christian life. You don't just need this to become a Christian. See, we th- I need that to become a Christian. I'm saved, I'm justified, blameless, forgiven. We need to grow deeper in the gospel. We need this to mature in the Christian life. This is how we grow in obedience. <sighs> what do I mean? For many of us who don't believe the gospel, or for many of us whom the gospel hasn't taken deep root, do you know what we're going to do when we see sinfulness, wickedness, and evil in us that we didn't think we were capable of? Let me ask you, how do you respond? How do I respond when, when, when that happens? One of two ways. One, some of us go into denial. How many of you know people who are in denial about their issues? How many of you know that's you? It's so easy to go, man, she's so in denial. Do you know that's you and that's me? We go into denial when we can't face up to who we are, what we're capable of. And we repress it, we press it, and we walk. Here's another thing we do. We pretend it's not a problem. We pretend. And I always say this, pretending is exhausting work. It's hard. That's why some of you are just so tired. You ever go on a first date? You come home like at 10 o'clock, you're like, that's exhausting. I need to go to bed. <laughs> why? That's not you. On the first date, the whole time, you're trying to impress through all the. Why are you doing that with God and with other Christians? That's why, you're so t- that's why I'm so tired. Well, pretend. Can I ask you a question? Can you truly change if you live a life of denial and pretending? Answer, church, no. But we do it all the time. Why? Because we can't own up to who we are. I say this all the time. I'm going to say it again. Every single one of you, I don't, I don't even have to know who you are. Deep down in your heart is a desire to be fully known and fully loved. You and I today, even if you're not in relationship, every single one of us this morning says, I want somebody to know all about me, and I want somebody to say, and I love you unconditionally, every single one of us. That's the longing of our hearts. But here's a question. How can you be loved like that when you hide parts of who you are? That's why for some of us, when somebody comes to us and says, I love you, we go, there's no power in that. Why? Because that's how you're going, but you don't know everything about me. You can say that you love me, but you don't know everything about me. Because if you knew everything about me, you wouldn't love me. So we walk around wanting to be fully loved and fully, fully accepted. And yet, because we walk around never fully known, we never enter a genuine community, not just with others, but with God. I've shared with you many times, Alcoholics Anonymous, and my friends who are in it have been tremendously helpful in terms of understanding Christianity better. And Byron and I talked about this a little bit. In chapter 5 of the big book, Here's what we find. Is that they, that is those who do not recover, are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Rigorous honesty is characterized by the complete lack of intent to deceive oneself or anyone else. Question. Does rigorous honesty... Describe you, and this is describe me. Can we sit here this morning and say, "I am rigorously honest about who I am"? Many of us are like, "Nah." Do you know why? Because you know how much courage and security it takes for you to go. Here it is. Do you know how much security and courage it takes to look at yourself in the mirror and go, that's who I am? Okay. Where do you get this security from? Where do you get this security and courage from? The only, <laughs> I always go like this, cross is always right here. The only place that you get the security, imaginary cross right here, the only place that you get the security is when you look at the cross because the cross of Jesus Christ shouts to you and me, what? You are both simultaneously evil and wicked and unconditionally loved, period. This is good news for one person. That's awesome. That's the only, you guys don't have to get the, okay, okay, go ahead and get the cross. I can't, I keep telling you, I can't preach without the girls. Rigorous honesty and the only way to be able to say, I am, this is who I, can I, are you guys rigorously honest? Are you guys rigorously honest? Can you honestly see that there's somebody besides God that knows everything about, everything about you, everything, is there, you guys, Why? It's not because you're a bad person, evil person, or something wrong with you. It's because you're insecure and you're a coward. How are you going to overcome insecurity and cowardice? By trying harder? By going to therapy? The cross, the cross, the cross. The cross, the cross, the cross. Do you know why we don't grow spiritually? Do you know why it's hard for us to obey? It's because we have amnesia. We have amnesia. And that's not just me, you know, being bad with names, because I know some of you are like, he has amnesia, because I've met him 20 times, and he still doesn't know who I am. It's because all of you guys look alike. That's what it is. Anyway. Where was I? We have amnesia. That's what was. We have amnesia. Listen, the reason why we don't go spiritually is because we forget what happened on the cross. We forget what happened on the cross. And if you forget what happened on the cross, yesterday's sins will handcuff you. Yeah, yesterday's sins will handcuff you. And you will not have the courage. You know what else he won't give you? He won't give you the love that says, he did that for me. How can I not live my life for him? You and I have amnesia. That's why every Sunday, I... I Cause I need this in my life now, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, every single day to remind me. Because listen, listen, it's not, Peter, if I do something that makes me go, Oh my gosh, that's me. No, no, no. It's when. Trust me. You will. Some point. Do something that will bring up cowardice, fear, insecurity, like you thought, I, I, I can't, this isn't me. And when that happens, if you do not have the security and the courage that says, you are evil, wicked, and sinful, and yet totally loved, you will go to denial and pretend, and you'll never grow. My God. My God. I told you this was going to be hard. To be able to say, look, you know, there, there are people who say, you know, stop calling yourself a sinner. It's unhealthy. It's emotionally unhealthy. To be able to call yourself, listen, it is the height of spirit. It is the height of emotional health to be able to say, I am a sinner. And yet I'm unconditionally loved by a perfect God is the epitome of emotional health. Hello. And you know what else it'll do? This is powerful. You know what? When you see that, you know what the dynamic is? Here's the thing. The thing I'm realizing, and Dan and Wendy, you guys are older saints. Maybe you guys are Do you realize that the more spiritually mature you become, the more sin you see in yourself? Do you know that? That's how you gain spiritual maturity. Because here's the thing. When we're younger, we gain spiritual maturity by what? Outward behavior. I'm doing that, not doing that, doing that, not doing that, doing that, not doing that. But when you grow spiritually you start not looking the external, but you start looking at the motives and the heart. And you realize, you say stuff like, what an idiot who runs out of gas? And go, you do, you stupid idiot. And you realize that the holier you become, listen, the less holy you feel. Why? Because the closer you get to the perfect, blemishless light of God, the more blemishes and flaws you see. And here's the wonderful dynamic. So as you grow more spiritually, check this out. Listen, listen, listen. The more you go spiritually, the more you see the sinfulness, the wickedness. But the more you see the sinfulness and wickedness, the more beautiful and amazing the cost, the sacrifice, and this becomes. So it's this dynamic of, I am sinful. I got all this stuff. Oh, my gosh, he did that for me. Oh, I'm sinful, I got all this work to do. Oh my gosh, he did that for me. And this incredible dynamic that causes you to grow. The reason why some of us stop growing is that cycle has been broken. And we either stop at, I'm so sinful, I'm so worthless, and don't see the beauty in the cost. Or we just see the beauty in the cost, but it doesn't cause us to look deeper and go, look at these flaws. Is this happening to you? Is this dynamic happening to you? oh guys <sighs> if you're not a christian here today and you go you know this whole god of the cross and the bible i just believe in a god who loves everybody god loves everybody here's my question for you what did it cost your god to love you and to have you in his arms see a god who loves everybody will never change my heart cuz i'm going to look at it and go well what would you do I just love everybody. Okay. But a God who says, I did that for you is the only God who could cause your heart and my heart to explode and go, love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life. The Christian life. Is that happening to you? Is that happening to me? Can I mention one other thing and then we'll move on? I shared with you a while back that I think I have the sin of narcissism. Does anybody else have that? Okay, three of us, okay. And I'm realizing when it comes to spirituality, the sin that I need to remove daily, listen very carefully, is my narcissistic understanding of spiritual progress. Here's what I mean. I think way too much about how I'm doing, what I need to do better, what I need to improve on. Does anybody relate? And I think very little about what Christ has already done for me. Listen, you want me to say it again? Okay, I'll say it again. I'm narcissistic when it comes to spiritual maturity because I'm constantly thinking about what do I need to do? What do I need better? What do I need to do? What do I need better? And here's the amazing thing. I don't get better. I don't get better over consumed self-narcissistic evaluation if anything i become neurotic and self-absorbed because i'm constantly going how am i doing how am i doing how am i doing how are they treating me how am i doing?" constantly my focus on my performance over christ's performance for me doesn't make me better it's making me worse my question for you what is your understanding of spiritual maturity Here's what I need to do and how I need to handle all these things. Well, here's what Christ has done for me so that I can do these things and handle them. If this morning your entire view on spiritual maturity is what I need to do, what I need to do, what I need to do, you're a narcissist spiritually, and it will never transform you. It's only when you go, stop focusing your stupid eyes on yourself. What has Christ done for me? Ah. Another way we say it is like this. It's when you become smaller and he becomes greater. That spiritual maturity. I'm realizing that when I've stopped focusing on my narcissistic, performance-oriented Christianity and look more to what Christ has done, that is what spiritual maturity is. So question, as we talk about new you, I told you guys last week, I just just need to look at your Bibles. Because if your Bibles and the epistles especially are highlighted on verses chapters 3, that second half, do not have an awesome do. Therefore, obey. Du-du-du-du. If that's your highlighted part, you're like, yes, memorization, yes. Or is your Bible highlighted, full of who God is? Here's what He has done. Spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. Some of us need to go home today and repent of our sin of spiritual narcissism. Verse 21, here we go. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. And I love that. I love that. I love that when you become a Christian. Listen, when you become a Christian, God literally says what? In in, the Old Testament, he removes the heart of stone and he gives us the heart of flesh. That means that when we become a Christian, God changes and transforms our hearts to a way. He gives us, listen, the want to the desire to obey God. He doesn't just go, now you're saved, go do it. He says, "Not only are you saved, but I'm writing my commands on your heart, and I'm giving you this desire that says all of a sudden now, I want to obey you, God. You know why God does that? Because God doesn't just want you to obey. God wants you to want to obey. Spiritual maturity is not just... I'm gonna suck it up and obey. Spiritual maturity is when you shh. Spiritual maturity is when you find yourself wanting to do the things that you should do. No relationship will last if it's based on should only. You know this inherently. I know this. Friendships, relationships. If a relationship is purely based on, I do this because I should, it will not last. Spiritual maturity is when you look at the, you should do these things. And your heart says, God, I want to. I find pleasure in it, God. I delight to do your will. Why do people, why do us Christians, why do we Christians think that spiritual maturity is about obeying a bunch of rules? Two things. You could obey the rules while being far away from Jesus. And secondly, if your entire spiritual life is contingent upon rules and shoulds, it will always be an obligation rather than a desire of your heart. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you go, Peter, I'm just at that point spiritually, I'm dry, I'm in the desert, whatever metaphor you want to use. And here's what I would say to you. You know, the first beginning point is, if you're like, first beginning point is to go before God with rigorous honesty and say, God, I don't want you right now. I don't. I don't desire you right now. I don't. I don't. I don't have the want to right now. I don't. But God, give me the want to. God, give me the want to. The answer is not to go. Well, I'm just going to overwhelm my not wanting feeling. I got to go to this spiritual the spiritual disciplines to order priority. Is to go before God honestly and say, God, will you give me the want to? Because I just don't want to. And it's in that context that we pursue the spiritual discipline. Listen, do you know how many times? Do you know how many times I've honestly done this? I've honestly opened my Bible. And I've honestly said, God, I don't want to read. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to read the Bible right now. But God, give me the want to. And I'll be honest, it's not like miraculously goes, oh my goodness, all of a sudden. It doesn't. It doesn't. And if that's you, you're a liar. Talk to me afterwards. I'll pray for you. It doesn't happen. Sometimes, miraculously, Holy Spirit, like, whoa. But for most of us, we don't. And so here's what we do. Maturity says, God, give me the want to. Give me the desire to, because I just don't right now. And say, all right. So I find this law at work. I don't want to. God, give me the want to. And this journey, this battle, it doesn't just happen once and all of a sudden it goes for the rest of our lives. It's God, I don't want to. <gasps> give me the want to. I love your word. I delight in you. Now I don't want to. <gasps> God, give me the want to. A constant. But I tell you what makes a huge difference. Do you have amnesia? Do you have amnesia? Do you rarely ever think about the cross? I'll never know how much it costs to see my sins. God, I don't want to. Upon the cross, I'll never know. God, I don't. (laughs) What made this even harder for me is uh, I grew up in a church where it was almost like people equated holiness with boring. It's like I grew up in a church where people were determined to take anything fun or joyful out of the Christian life. You know what I'm talking about, Dan? I know. We're in the same generation, so you know what I'm talking about. Like, we struggle with the same things, right? We struggled. I struggle with that. You know why? Because people came to me and said stuff like, you can't, no, no. And It was all just, and here's the premise of that. The premise of that is this, right? The premise of that is I sin when I desire stuff. So if I didn't desire stuff, I just wouldn't sin. So let's just get rid of everything that's desirable, right? So sex, food, money, whatever. I just, I just get rid of them. Well, yeah, you can get rid of them, but then you just be weird, right? So here's what Christians do in churches. Get rid of the desire, then you won't be tempted to sin, then you won't sin, and you'll be holy. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Had wonderful advice. Why? He said, the problem isn't that your desires are too strong. I want sex so much. I want money so much. Your problems aren't too strong. He said, your what? Your desires are too weak. Here's what he said. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. He says, our problem is that we are far too easily pleased. You and I are the little kid making mud pies. When somebody's offering us a week-long vacation holiday at the sea, we're going, no, 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 this is good. This is good. Food, money, Say, no, this is good. I'm, I'm, I'm good right here. I'm good right here. And C.S. Lewis says, you will never overcome temptation, not because your desires are strong. Your desires are too weak. And we all know the mud pies, does it satisfy you? Answer, does it satisfy you? No, it doesn't. Does it ever, ever fulfill you? No, it doesn't. But we go, this is all I know. I'm just going to sit here and make my mud pies. We cannot overcome temptation to sin by repressing desire. The only way you and I are going to overcome temptation is by finding a deeper and greater desire. And that deeper and greater desire, his name is Jesus. Theologians calls it, call it the expulsive nature, the expulsive nature, the expulsive nature of new affections. What do I mean? We cannot continue to go, no, 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 no. You have to find this something to say yes to. You can't continue to go, that temptation, that temptation, that sin. No, 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 la, 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 no. I'm going to discipline myself. You can't because it won't work. The only way that overwhelming desire can be overcome is if you have a greater desire that says, I'm going to crowd you out because you're not doing it for me. And the only thing that could crowd out the weaker, self-serving, never ever filling desire is if there are new affections and new desires that could only come when you glory in the beauty and satisfaction of Jesus. And you could honestly come before Jesus and say, you're enough for me. You're enough for Men in our church who struggle with sexual temptation, addiction, you will never overcome it by just saying no. You have to have the expulsive desire of new affections arise within that says, I want this when this is available for me. Ladies, I tell you guys all the time, if you're single and you're content being single, I tell you what, the only way, Men and ladies, singles both, not just ladies. The only way for you to remain single and be honestly content in your singleness is not just continue to go, no, 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 it's to be able to go, yes, Jesus. And new affections that say, you are enough for me. And by the way, just for singles, that's a beautiful quality, by the way. It's a beautiful quality in seeing a man or woman of God, so centered, grounded, anchored in God that says, you're enough for me. You're enough for me. Are you continually going, nope, 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 nope. Or is there a greater yes? That's being burst forth from your heart. Let's finish. Verse 23. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Verse 24. What? A wretched man I am. Do you feel his desperation? Do do, do you do you feel Paul's utter desperation at his inability literally to live the Christian life? What Paul is saying here is I in myself cannot live the Christian life. I, Paul, planted these churches, brought the gospel to these many people, I, all these things. I, Paul, cannot live the Christian life. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Do you sense this desperation? Here's the question, are you there yet? Am I there yet? Are we there yet? Do you know why this is so important? We don't have a chance of living the spirit-filled life that Paul talks about in Romans 8 until we get to the place of going, I'm done trying. I can't do it. So here's a question are you there yet? (laughs) My guess, because I'm not there yet. Just FYI, I'm not quite there yet. Majority of us this morning are going something like, I'm not that bad. I'll talk about that in a minute. I'm not that bad. I'm doing okay. I struggle here and there, but I'm not that bad. I'm a little naturally disciplined. I'm not um, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. Some of us, oh, you know, this is a sin I'm struggling with. And, you know, I mean, it's a little bit embarrassing I'm struggling with. And if somebody found out, well, that, would be, that would be kind of hard. But you're not there yet. The devastation and your inability, inability to overcome it and defeat by the sin, you're not desperate yet. Are you there yet? Are we, as followers of Jesus, there at the point of going, oh, what a wretch Because if we're not there yet, what comes next? What comes next? Look at the passage, Romans 7, verse 24. What comes next, guys? Oh, what a wretched when I am. Read it with me, ready? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, do you see what he's doing? I should have left you guys hanging a little longer on the verse 24. Oh, wretched. Oh, wretched. Oh, wretched. Oh, wretched. This is bad news. No! It's great news! It's liberating. Why? This isn't depressing because the good news is you can't do it, so he came and did it for you and will continue to do it for you. That's the good news. But here's the thing. You will not go, whoa If you do not feel the Oh, what a wretched man I am. And now some of you finally know. I come to church. I hear him talk about the gospel all the time. And why is it for him? It's like, (laughs) and joy bursting thing. And for me, it's kind of like, nah. Because you are not there yet of going, oh, despair. What a wretched man I am. Let me finish by saying three things about how you go and how I change. First, wretched man I am. Paul doesn't say, if I try really hard, I can overcome this. Paul literally says, I am helpless. And wretched man that I am, point, precedes a reception of God's grace. You and I will never know Christ to be a great savior if we do not see ourselves as great sinners. You and I will never know the great deliverance that Christ brings if you and I are not caught and struck with the great slavery that we find ourselves in. You will never cry out, oh, wretched man that I am. I have no chance but for grace and grace alone. If you're constantly going, grace, but you know. And for many of us, our posture is, grace, but you know. And but you know is grace. I'm not that bad. I do these things. I serve. I've gone off the deep end. I struggle with... Reception of grace entails you and I to go, I am helpless. Good news, bad news. Because God loves you, he'll bring you to that point. And for those of us that are stubborn as heck, strong-willed, and i can do it all god will bring us to the point of desperation before we can go okay i think i'm done i think i'm done (laughs) and we're not there yet i'm just telling you many of us are not there yet when it comes though be ready secondly you're like did he just threaten me no i didn't just threaten you (laughs) wretched man that I am not only precedes reception of God's grace, but it precedes it, it reception of the spirit's power. and we're going to talk about this in Romans 8: The spirit's power to work in our lives is available to those of us who have come to the end of ourselves, I'm telling you. End of ourselves is saying, "I'm done." Not yet, Peter. Really? Really? Try a little more on your own effort. Well, here I go. I'm done. I'm done. Two signs that you're done surrender, and I give up control. I give up control of my life, my family, my future. I'm helpless. First thing, oh, wretched man that I am. Many of us, we're not there yet. Second thing is then, who will rescue me? And I love this. Paul doesn't ask, what should I do? What should I do? We know what support group should I join? What sermon should I hear? What should I do? He doesn't even say, how? How will I get through this? What are the disciplines? Paul's answer is, who will rescue me? And he's saying, the answer is not in what you do or how you do it. The answer is in a person is not a person, in his name is Jesus. Paul doesn't look in. Stop looking into yourself. Stop looking inward to find help, find power, find your energy, find your ability. When Paul looks in, he sees somebody who is cosmically, royally screwed up. When he looks in, all he can do is despair. It's that point when he looks out and looks up. And he says, who? Who will rescue me? And Paul says it's a relationship. Guys, when I preach on Romans 8 next two weeks, many of you are going to come and go, How? How do we walk in the Spirit? How do you follow the Spirit? Do you notice? Jesus walks around and goes, Here's what it means to follow me. How? Vine. Remains on the, branch. no, <laughs> you are the vine, I am the, bra- I am the vine, you are the branches. Tell you how much I know scripture. I'm the vine, you're the branches. A man remains in me, and I in him. You'll bear much fruit. Question, does Jesus answer how? In a way he does, but he says what? At the end of the day. Please listen to this. The reason why the Bible doesn't say here's how and the Bible says it's a who is because at the end of the day, God is saying through a megaphone, it's about a relationship and not rules. It's about a relationship with the living God and not rules. The rules and things you do flow out of the relationship, but you get the order reversed and it'll be toxic to your soul. It's about a relationship first. And the rules and the how flow out of that. The question is not how well are you obeying. The question is how closely are you walking with Jesus? Tell me the how. You're a branch. I'm divine. Remain. How? I'm the sheep, you're the sheep. I totally messed that up too. <laughs> third, 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 let's end, let's end. Come on, let's end. Thirdly, he says what? Carlton, come on up. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And can I stand with this? What makes you a Christian and how you grow? First, wretched, I am helpless. Second, who will rescue me? And the third, you miss it if you don't pay attention, is thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Why is that huge? Why is that huge? It's huge because every single temptation to sin, every single war with sin, you could either approach it from the perspective of I'm going to try harder, or you can go thanks be to God that he met that need that I'm wanting to get through this sin. Thanks be to God. Do you know why some of us struggle with so much sin? It's because we're ungrateful. And we live a life of entitlement. And the gospel comes and we go, yeah. It's those who go, thanks be to God. To Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't you want to do that thing? Come on. It's really luring. It's really good. It's going to meet that need. What do you do? I'm going to try harder. Pull myself out of stress. More spiritualism. Oh, you look at that and go, "Thanks be to God. He met it. I'm good." Is your heart bursting forth with "Thanks be to God." Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. I can be crushed by that criticism. I can be crushed by that somebody comes and says, uh, you're not as good as you think. Why? I need your approval. I need your affirmation. Or you can go what? Say it with me, church. You can say, thanks be to God. Who do I care about what the peasants say when I have the praise of the king? Who cares? Thanks be to God. Is that bursting forth in your heart? It bursting forth, in, and you know what? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You ready? Do you know why? Thanks be to God, it's not bursting forth. It's because we haven't gotten to the point go, okay, well, I'm going to convince my, it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit that comes to our hearts and shows us our utter depravity, our utter desperation, our utter helplessness. Are you there yet? Are you there yet? I'm not there yet. And if you're not there yet, can you pray for me and I pray for you? How does that sound? this place meditate throughout this week two verses oh wretched man that I am who will rescue me thanks be to God through Jesus Christ Benediction for you, oh wretched man, woman, that I am who will rescue me from this thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all of God's people said. And all of God's people said, shout it out. Amen.